Lord, we would ask that you would take every mind and every heart and every ear uh, now and my mouth and center them all faithfully upon yourself that we might preach and teach your word rightly and truly, that the Holy Spirit himself would have authority and power in this time to communicate the word of God to us. Pray that you would also be with our ears as we hear, that we might be open and receptive to your words, that you might encourage us, instruct us, rebuke us, uh, do all that you know needs to be done in our hearts in a way that only you can do it, so that you might lead us to Jesus Christ. Everything is for his glory, and in his name we pray. Amen. Okay, though, though technically we were still in 1 Timothy last week, we sort of jumped out of the normal flow of our series to consider a particular topic, and now we're ready to jump back into our series. Just as a reminder, we are working our way through the book of 1 Timothy, written by an apostle of Jesus Christ named Paul, written to his apprentice uh, in the faith, a man named Timothy. And if you remember, Timothy is a young pastor in a major metropolitan ancient city called Ephesus, a city that was much like ours in many ways. And if you remember also, there was a young church planted in that city, much like ours, a young, vibrant, healthy church that was loving its city. People were believing the gospel, living in community, being sent on mission. Everything was beautiful there for a good season. And then if you remember, 1 Timothy was written because everything turned into a mess. Everything that could go wrong went wrong. And Timothy, we find out in this first letter to Timothy, was the young pastor who was charged by Paul to get in there and work so that this could become again a healthy church. Now, if you're following with us through this series, you'll notice that there's something different about how we're approaching this. So normally what we do is we go chapter by chapter and we go verse by verse and we sort of sequentially make our way through the book. If you'll remember, two weeks ago when Binu preached, he preached in chapter 1, verses 3 and following. This week we're in chapter 2, looking especially at verses 8 and 10. Next week we're going to be in chapter 4. And so you see that we're sort of bouncing around a little bit. And the reason we're doing that is because our approach to this book is a little different in that we're going to divide this book into two parts. Part one, we're calling repairing the damage. And so in part one, what we're saying is we're going through the book and we're getting Paul to say, Timothy, here's all the places where everything is a mess and you've got to get in there and you've got to fix the mess. You've got to repair the damage. And then we're going to go back through the book again and cover the places we missed by looking at part two, which is restoring beauty. And that's where Paul says, Timothy, and here's some wisdom of what you need to put into place in the life of a church so that by repairing the damage and restoring beauty, this might again become a healthy church. So that's what we want to do. We want to cover this letter in that two-part way and through it get a vision for what is a healthy church. Okay, so we're now in the part one half of this series. We're looking at repairing damage. Timothy, here's the places in the life of this church that has now become a mess, and here's what you need to do to fix it, to repair the damage. And for that, this week, we are in chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. It's the passage Ashley just read for us. If you've got a Bible, turn there because we're going to spend all our time there. And you can just leave your finger there. If you don't have a Bible, there's one in the chair in front of you. We're in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. Those two verses. As you turn there, let me just remind you, 
that when Binu preached of some of the problems in the life of this church, he started in chapter 1 with the problems that were happening in the pulpit. Right? If you remember, in chapter 1, what had happened was rather than being fixed on the gospel, the pastors, the leaders who were standing behind the pulpit had strayed away from the gospel to a different doctrine. And now they were caught up in vain myths and endless genealogies and speculations and controversies, and they were squabbling about lots of things that didn't matter and forgetting the thing that did. And so the first problem was the problem right in the pulpit. In chapter 2, verses 8 through 10, the passage we're going to look at, the problem that Paul's going to address is in the pews. It's with the men and the women that sit where you're sitting right now. We sort of went after the guy here. Now we're going after the guys and gals who sit out there. Because now we're going to find that the men and women who were in Ephesus were just as messed up in need of repair. And so what Paul does in verses 8 through 10 is he addresses the men and women. And he does it just like that. He addresses the men specifically and then the women specifically by gender. And he addresses both of them. Okay? First... He starts with the men, okay? So brothers, this is our turn first. If this were a game, right now we'd be putting on our helmets and making sure our shoulder pads are in place, making sure we have a cup on because Paul is about to go after us, okay? 2 verse 8, this is what he says. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Let me read that again. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Let's talk through this. The original language in which the Bible is written, the New Testament, is Greek. The Greek word here for men is men, right? And so you might be thinking, Ajay, did you spend thousands of dollars on your seminary education so that you could tell us that little nugget? I did. The Greek word here for men is men, right? So he's not just talking generically about mankind. He's speaking specifically to the males. And the reason that Paul's doing this, addressing the men and the women separately, is Paul is not, you know, caught up in the politically correct culture that we live in. So he's not in the sexually gender-confused culture we live in. He has no problem knowing that men and women are different and that these differences also mean that we tend to sin differently. That sometimes the things that men struggle with and get tripped up with are different than the things that women trip up with and struggle with. And that in our differences, we tend to also sin differently. Uh, and one of the places he's going to identify here is that men can tend to be hotheads, right? Men can have a bent, a proclivity, a propensity towards anger and violence that is faster and steeper in its slope than women. It's not to say that women don't get angry, but that if you look at the culture even, if you're religious or irreligious, the statistics will tell us anger and violence is a struggle that men struggle with in greater propensity, with greater frequency than women. And so what he's going to do is address the men in an area of their lives where they are prone to sin, right? And this is not new for many of you. The brothers in the room will tell you that except for Jesus, many of us were angry people, given to anger and quarreling and violence, that if Jesus had not come into our lives and changed us and saved us and changed our hearts, 
we would be walking down paths of anger and violence all the time. I love, I'm going to pick on Dennis, I love how Dennis has shared this part of his life and story publicly. When he's talked about how Jesus came into his life, one of the places he's recognized is that before Jesus, he was an angry man. And if it weren't for Jesus, he would remain an angry man. I, I didn't grow up with Dennis, but from what I hear, because of his anger, chairs went flying across a mall. Uh, because of his anger, some kid who played football went to the hospital. I, I know Dennis is a Christian now, and I'm scared of him. I can't even imagine if I met him before Jesus came into his life, right? And many of you would have a very similar story and say, yeah, if it wasn't for the Lord, whether it got expressed through my fists or not, I know what it's like to have rage sort of boil in my heart and the bitterness and anger that can consume if things are not done or go my way. The men at Ephesus in that early church plant were not any different than us. And so they too had a propensity, a proclivity towards anger. And apparently what was happening was that the men at Ephesus were sort of coming to Sunday morning worship and treating church like it was some UFC event. They were coming to church with their fists locked, ready to throw down. And we're not told in the text exactly what it is that they were angry about or what they were fighting about. We can infer, perhaps, that it's some of the stuff mentioned in chapter 1, that they were engaged in vain discussions and meaningless controversies and squabbles about all kinds of speculations, and perhaps these were the things that they were ready to fight about and fight over. What we do know is that rather than lifting hands in prayer, the men at Ephesus were lifting fists for a fight, right? The posture that you see here in chapter 2, in verses 1 through 7, what Ashley had read for us. We'll look at that section later in our series. But Paul is basically calling the whole church to be a people of prayer. And what you find in verse 8 is that the men, rather than lifting hands, holy hands, in prayer, are lifting fists ready for a fight. And here's the thing. We know that they had drifted away from the gospel. And when a church and people drift away from the gospel, there is no shortage of things for them to fight about. Does that make sense? If, if you've been a part of church, some of you grew up in churches. If you've been a part of a church that is not centered on the gospel, it's amazing what church people can fight about. Right? If you don't major on that which is major, then everything that's minor becomes major. And there's no shortage of things for men to fight about. Suddenly the color of the carpet, uh, where you spend the money, how you're going to do your building project. Every decision becomes an opportunity for conflict. Every decision becomes an opportunity for teams and factions and fractions and division and fights. Right? Every little thing becomes an opportunity for anger and quarreling, which is exactly what happens in Ephesus. Listen, if you think that 1 Timothy is some kind of ancient, antiquated, old book that has no modern application for us Christians in the 2013 era, you, you could not be further from the truth. Some of you know personally some of you have grown up in churches where the assembly of the members of the church was an opportunity for fighting. You knew, and it was, it was just like Ephesus. It wasn't some weeknight, or it was at church on Sundays, and you knew you were going to get ready to witness a rumble. 
I can tell you I know of churches where sadly the police needed to be called in to restrain angry and quarreling men. When you drift from the gospel, there's no shortage of things to fight over and be angry about. And so why Paul's writing this is to say, Timothy, not here. That's not happening here. Here's what I want. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Paul saying through Timothy, men, your call is to lead not by throwing up your fists, fighting for your way to be done, but to lead the church by being men who pray. Your call is not to lift fists anymore in anger and quarreling, but to lift holy hands in prayer. Paul has in mind here the picture of a whole assembly of men who are gathered for corporate worship on a Sunday morning, and his picture is of them all raising their hands in prayer this biblical posture of prayer that would have been common in his day, right? I want you to hear that. It's not saying, this text is not prescribing that lifting hands is only for men. It's also not prescribing that all people must at all times when they pray lift their hands. It's not prescribing that because in the scriptures we see that there are all kinds of postures for prayer, right? There's kneeling and there's bowing and there's standing and there's lying down prostrate and there's raising of hands. What, what I'd say is this, while this text is not prescribing us to lift our hands, it is describing that one of the appropriate postures of prayer is to raise your hands in prayer. Particularly if you're new at Seven Mile Road and you come here and you go, this is the weirdest place in the world. Why are they raising their hands? What is that about? I want you to hear from 1 Timothy 2.8 that one of the reasons is because this is a biblically described posture of prayer, right? When you surrender, you throw your hands up. Or when you see a kid need their dad, he throws his hands up. Or when you're in worship, you throw your hands up. Whatever the posture or the, the reasons behind this posture, a biblically described posture of prayer for our men is to lead the church by raising your hands in prayer. Now, more than what I want to say about the posture Here's what I'm also struck by. He says in this text, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. He doesn't just say lifting hands in prayer. He says lifting holy hands in prayer. I can tell you I was singing a few months ago here with you on a Sunday morning had my arms outstretched, and I was stunned at the thought, while I'm singing, that God would count these two hands of mine to be holy hands. I can't tell you what a thought that was for me. I'm singing and thinking, stunned at the thought that God would count these hands to be holy hands. Men, I want to ask you to do something. I never ask you to do anything cheesy at the church, right? Because, you know, you go to some places and they go, turn to your, the person next to you and say, you're special. And now you got to turn to the right and go, you're special. I hate all that cheesiness, right? So I never ask you to do anything cheesy. Would you for a second look at your hands? 
Now you tell me for a second. You can stop. Would you count these holy? If you considered the story that your hands could tell, if they could communicate, would you use the word holy to describe these two hands? What they have done, what they have taken, what they have touched, would you use the word holy to describe them? I can think of a thousand descriptors. Holy would be the last one on the list. If our hands could communicate a story, it would be a sick and sordid story of sin, what these hands would tell. Some of our hands have robbed and taken and stolen things that did not belong to us. Some of our hands have been clenched in fists and expressions of aggression and anger and violence to push, to hit, to shove other men, God forbid, women or children. Some of our hands have been a part of sexual immorality in every kind. What they have typed, what they have done, some of our hands have been employed for that which is illegal. Some of our hands have been folded or deep in our pockets when finally they should have been out, protecting, providing, working, defending, and yet they were idle or we were sitting on them or we were lazy. Some of us are, are Christian men, Christians, and these hands have touched iPads and iPhones and laptops, and it's been weeks since they've touched a Bible or God's word. And some of us are men here who are not Christians, who are playing Christians. And, and we come here week after week, and we drop money with these hands as though we're trying to bribe or buy God. Or we take communion with no thought for the body or the blood of Christ. Resolved that right after the service is done, these hands will be employed for sin again. Or we'll even raise them in singing and worship, patterning everyone else as though no one can see the duplicity and hypocrisy. I could keep going, but here's what I'd say. All of us, wherever we are, these hands would be called anything but holy. So how on earth is Paul going to say, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands, not in anger or in quarreling. As I said, as I was singing there and stunned at the thought that God would count these two hands to be holy hands, the other thought that washed over my heart and soul is there's only one way that could possibly be. There's only one way these could be holy hands. And that is because of what we call the gospel or the good news. And that is there was one man whose hands were holy. And his hands were stretched out onto a cross. And what should have happened to your hands happened to his. They were nailed down to a cross. And then in this most glorious and beautiful exchange that the Bible talks about, this unbelievable thing happened, which is as his hands, which were holy, 
were nailed down and bloodied on that cross, it was as if you, through repentance and faith, were counted with him, in him, as if it were your own hands, as if the penalty for your hands had been paid for on that cross. And then the exchange is that his holy hands became defiled with your sin, and your sinful hands became holy through him. Your hands, covered and caked with sin, suddenly became holy. And his perfect hands became covered and caked with sin. This exchange is the gospel. So that now, Paul can honestly look every Christian man in the eye and say, lift your holy hands in prayer. Paul can look and say, your hands have now been utterly cleansed. The penalty due for them have honestly been paid for in the cross. There's been this exchange. You are now cleansed. These are now holy hands, which is why Paul's going to grab every man by the collar and say, don't ever use these hands again for anger and quarreling. Rather, your hands are now to be lifted, leading the church in prayer. You have a new call now. You have, your hands have been redeemed. Your whole being has been redeemed for something better. So don't walk in the trails you once walked. Again, because of my anti-cheesiness policy, I'm not going to do it. I was almost tempted to ask every man to raise their hands so that you'd see a sea of hands here and be won over by the thought, God's redeemed these men and their hands for good now. Whatever their story used to be, these hands now are to be raised in the assembly of God's people in prayer. He says, in every place. So these men's hands are to be in their homes with one hand raised to the Lord and another outstretched over your wife or your child in prayer because you're going to lead now, not through anger and quarreling. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands, not in anger or in quarreling. The problem in the pews is not just the men, but it's also the women. And so now he turns to address them, and for that he goes in 9 and 10. Look at verses 9 and 10. Likewise also, that the women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Here again, remember, Paul's not caught up in our politically correct culture, so he can address the men honestly in an area that they will tend to struggle in, and he'll turn to address the women now honestly in an area where they will struggle in. You're not going to find that the problem in the church is that the women are the brawlers, no, they sin differently. They have a bent, a propensity, a leaning, a struggle in a different area. So whereas the men struggled with anger and violence, the women will have a bent towards struggling with issues of appearance or self-image or issues with beauty and modesty, right? Whereas the men have a particular bent or leaning, so likewise do the women with issues of image or appearance or beauty or fashion and all the rest. Now again, before you dismiss Paul as this outdated fuddy-duddy, you tell me. If you walk through the grocery aisle and you see the magazines, tell me what every magazine cover is for a woman, except dealing with issues of beauty and image and appearance and fashion 
and all the rest. And so here's what's happening at Ephesus. Whereas the men were treating Sunday morning worship like it was a UFC event, unfortunately the women were walking around like scantily clad women holding up the round cards at this event, right? They viewed church like it was a runway for them to parade themselves and flaunt their wealth, their beauties, their bodies, to make sure that everyone was looking and attracted to them. Church was like a runway. And, and here's what was happening. In Ephesus, it was a major metropolitan city like ours. You had wealthy women who would make sure their wealth was known through how they appeared in the clothes that they wore and how they wore it. And also in the city of Ephesus, you had this temple right in the middle of the city, and connected to it were a host of temple prostitutes. And these temple prostitutes also led the way in fashion because they were dressed a certain way, seductively, provocatively, to make sure that they could allure and seduce men. And here's what was happening in the church at Ephesus. The women in the church patterned their sense of fashion after the women in the culture. And so they imitated the dress of the wealthy or imitated the dress of the prostitutes. You'd have the women in the culture who would wear their hair up. So if you picture Marge Simpson, that was the hairstyle of everybody in Ephesus. Except the wealthy would make sure to deck out that high piece with gold and pearls and braid it in a certain way so that you knew those were the wealthy women. And doing this whole thing, they would strut into church. And now the men could hardly lift their hands and worship in prayer because everyone was distracted by staring at her. She accomplished exactly what she wanted to accomplish, which is to make sure everyone was looking. And no one could worship God or, or trust in Jesus because they were all being distracted by the women. And furthermore, you had the wealthy women who were coming in with their costly attire that somehow separated them from the other poor Christians, right? The poor Christians could never keep up with the Joneses. And so now, rather than brothers and sisters equal at the foot of the cross, you suddenly had this class beginning to develop between the wealthy Christians at the church plant in Ephesus and the not-so-wealthy Christians. Now again, is this some kind of old, antiquated, ancient book that has no modern application for us? Or, ladies at Seven Mile Road, is appearance and clothing and image and beauty and fashion all incredibly relevant? I read this week an article in Christianity Today, which is this Christian publication, and it was an article on the latest Sports Illustrated Swimsuit Edition. I did not do research. I did not look at it myself. But I'm told from the article that there is this new six-page spread showing women how they can recreate the look in the magazine. So a brand new feature where for six pages you are guided step by step on how average women, everyday women, can make themselves look like what you see in the magazine. And hear this, 18 million women, notice that, not men, 18 million women have already purchased and read the magazine so that they can do exactly that. It's only been out for a little bit, and 18 million women have already bought into this idea of how are we going to get ourselves to look like that. Tell me this isn't relevant. 
In the article, the writer quoted this quote from Tina Fey, who is a comedian. She's got a memoir out, and she has this great quote where she describes sort of the trend of our culture. She says, back in the day when she was a child, you were either blessed with a beautiful body or not, and if you were not, you could just chill out and learn a trade. Today, however, if you're not hot, you're expected to work on it until you are. And if you don't have a good body, you'd better starve the body you have down to a neutral shape, then bolt on some breast implants, replace your teeth, dye your skin orange, inject your lips, sew on some hair, and call yourself Playmate of the Year. She's got incredible wit, and so she says it well, but her point is... There's this trend in our culture, not noticed by the church, a bunch of, you know, outdated fuddy-duddies, by the culture, that there's this incredible pressure to make yourself appear a certain way. And that's exactly why Paul is telling the women in the church, do not let the culture, or godless, or immodest, or promiscuous women, define what should mark your appearance, or set the trends for your appearance, or give you the cues that you're supposed to follow in terms of your fashion. Which is why, again, for Ephesus, he says, likewise also the women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, as opposed to disrespectful, with modesty, as opposed to immodesty, and self-control, as opposed to a lack of control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls and costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Now again, hear me, Paul is not against here beauty. Paul's not against, and the Bible's not against a woman seeking to make herself beautiful. The, the scriptures are not against that, it's just not. God is a beautiful God, and he creates that which is beautiful. We know that, that's why the world around us is not black and white. That's why there's a, a million array of colors. That's why he paints the night sky every, way that, the, every night the way that he does. That's why there's hills and trees and mountains and, and lakes and flowers all designed the way that they are because they all shout the beauty of God. And so likewise, a woman who seeks to make things beautiful, even herself, rightly reflects our God who is beautiful. And even in the scriptures, you'll find passages of women who are godly, who are adorned in fine clothes and, and beautiful jewelry. The point is, you know, the point is not, you know, therefore go and throw out all your fashionable clothes. The point is not for all the women, because Paul said so, to now go and throw out all your makeup. Please, right? As, as my wife Shainu likes to say, if the barn needs to be painted, please paint the barn, right? So that's not what Paul's saying here. What Paul's saying is that the kind of immodesty and materialism and immorality that is found in the women who do not know God should not be found in the women who profess to know him. I'll say that again. What he's saying is that the kind of immodesty and immorality and materialism that is found in the women in the culture who don't know God ought not to be found among the women in the church who profess that they do. In verse 10, again, he says, this is what's expected of women who profess godliness. If you claim to be a Christian, the kind of immodesty, immorality, and materialism found among women who don't know God ought not to be found among women who profess to know him. 
So then what should women wear? Now I know that I am on incredibly dangerous ground because you're likely thinking, Ajay, are you really qualified to give women's fashion advice? You are barely qualified to give men's fashion advice, right? And I know that. Three weeks ago, Shelly was upstairs and she publicly rebuked me for my fashion. I, in fact, I quote, she said, why don't you grow up and buy slacks or something like that, right? So I know, I I, you could tell I deeply offended her through my fashion, right? She was visibly disturbed by it. So I know that I am the last to give fashion advice. So I want to hug as tightly as I can to what Paul says rather than give you advice of my own. Here's what Paul says should adorn women who profess godliness. They should adorn themselves with, verse 10, what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. That is Paul's way of saying the emphasis, the most notable feature about you, that which stands out at first glance of you, women, ought to be your good works. That which is so prominent about you, what is noticeable about you above all, ought to be your character, your nature, your good works. I read this week a journal entry by a teenage girl in 1892 contrasted with a journal entry by a teenage girl in 1992. And, and I won't make comments yet, but you'll see the progression and the difference between what is valued by a teenager in 1892 and what is valued by a teenager in 1992. Let me read you the quote from 1892. This is in her journal. Resolved not to talk about myself or feelings, to think before speaking, to work seriously, to be self-restrained in conversation and actions, not to let my thoughts wander, to be dignified, interest myself more in others. Before I make comments, notice the emphasis of what she's concerned with. And now for a quote from a journal of a teenager in 1992. I will try to make myself better in any way I possibly can with the help of my budget and babysitting money. I will lose weight, get new lenses, already got new haircut, good makeup, new clothes, and accessories. There is a vast difference between what was once most important and what in our day is most important. And so women drink in this lie that that which should be most prominent about you is some external experience rather than what is to be adorned by a woman who professes godliness. What Paul says is good works. Hear me. Listen, our culture is obsessed, obsessed with beauty and fashion and body and image and clothes and appearance and all of it. Now, you tell me. We live in this culture, so it's hard to be objective about it. But if you could get underneath it all and ask, why? Why is it that way? Why are we obsessed with what we're obsessed with? Tell me at the bottom rung of it all, at the foundation of it all, is not this desperate desire to be admired or appreciated or wanted or thought important or to have worth or to value. Tell me every magazine cover and the gal you see on it is not somehow from her soul screaming, please tell me I'm beautiful. Please tell me I'm worthy. 
Please stare at me in such a way that I know I'm worth something and valuable and desired and wanted and important. And if that's true, why it is so egregious for a Christian woman to be caught up in all of that is because you already have all of that. Are you really saying that what you already have through the gospel of Jesus Christ is not sufficient and you can gain it through nice shoes? Or that a bag is going to get for you the kind of acceptance and desire and importance and self-worth that your heart is longing for? That the way you wear that dress is going to get for you the acceptance, admiration, love, desire, importance that your heart craves. Why it's so egregious for a Christian woman to be caught up in all this is because you have all of it already in Jesus Christ. You have been wanted and are wanted by Jesus and desired by him and thought special by him and loved by him and cared for and admired and appreciated by him. And listen to me, his love for you has nothing to do with your appearance. He wants you more than he wants his own life and not because of an ounce of the way you look. He could not love you one ounce more even if you transformed your look or became whatever it is that you think is ideal. His love for you is already completely full and it has nothing to do with your appearance. Here's what the gospel says. The gospel says that Jesus so loved, accepted, desired, wanted you, thought you so valuable and important that he was willing to give his life and not just his life. The gospel even goes on to tell us in the accounts of his crucifixion, that Jesus was stripped of his clothes. So he hung on a, na on a tree naked for you so that through that act, he might clothe you. And he didn't die to clothe you with some fancy clothes or some nice shoes. The Bible's way of describing this is he died to clothe you with himself. In fact, that's the question the scriptures are going to ask. The New Testament is, are you clothed with Christ? Are you covered with him? Are you robed in his righteousness? Is his character covering you? And listen to me, women at Selma Road. If you've been clothed with Christ, you're not going to get better than that. You're not going to improve on the appearance that comes with being clothed in Christ. You're not going to improve on that. A bag's not going to help you get better than that. You've been clothed with Christ. The gospel says you've been covered with him. And so now the question of the New Testament is, are you adorned with the righteousness that comes from Christ, with his nature, with his character, or as Paul says it here, adorned with good works? So the most noticeable and notable and prominent feature about you, a Christian woman at Seven Mile Road, ought to be Christ-like character. I think if Paul were here, he'd say it like this. Please don't let it be that you have meticulously worked on your outfit and given no thought to your character. Please don't let it be that this morning, in preparation for Sunday worship, you spent an hour in front of the mirror making sure that every hair was in the right place and have not yet spent five minutes making sure that your heart is. 
Please don't let it be that you have given enormous thought, resources, energy, time, money, passion to what adorns your body in such a way that you have given no thought to what adorns your heart. Paul's question for a woman that's getting ready in the morning on Sunday morning to come to church would first be, have you put on Christ long before have you put on a nice outfit? Are you adorned with him? So as an application for you, women, I would ask you to ask yourself these three questions as perhaps a way to apply 1 Timothy 2, 9 and 10. One, what do my clothes say about my heart? Two, am I seeking to draw attention by what I wear or how I wear it? And if so, why? What am I looking for? And three, am I seeking through my appearance to gain something that I can only truly find in Christ? If you'd ask the question of, does God really care about my clothes? I'd say to you, he is the Lord of all of your life, including your closet. And he cares because your clothes reveal what is in your heart. And he cares desperately about your heart. He's died to win your heart. So then, if we're going to be a healthy church, Seven Mile Road, we need the gospel. Men and women need this gospel. Men, we need this gospel and believe it in such a way that we remember he has died to make these hands holy. These hands have a new story now in him. Their past is gone. They are a new creation in Christ. They've been redeemed for incredibly great purposes. And so do not use these hands again for anger or violence or the sins in which men sin but redeem these hands so that they might be lifted up in prayer, leading the people of God in prayer. In a moment when we take communion and sing, I'm going to invite you men, consider this word and perhaps even consider raising your hands. Again, I'm not suggesting this is a biblical prescription, but I am saying that perhaps in obedience to 1 Timothy 2.8, you might raise your hands as we worship and sing. And as you do... Would you let your heart be washed over by the thought that because of Jesus, these two hands of mine are now holy. Holy hands died to take my defiled hands and make them holy. And women at Seven Mile Road, you need the gospel to be reminded that you are now adorned with Christ. You can't improve on that. You're never going to be more beautiful than to be covered in Christ. And everything you're longing to gain through your appearance, you already have in him. You are sincerely desired and wanted and loved and admired. And someone thought you so worthy, he gave his life to have you. It's already yours. A bag is not going to do more. And so let the knowledge of what adorns your heart impact and influence and guide and shape your thinking about what adorns your body so that you might be covered with what is proper for a woman who professes godliness, good works.
May the gospel change us men and women. Let's pray. Our Lord, we do give you thanks for your word, and we thank you by it. You have shown us again Christ. Draw us near to him and help us to receive the benefits that have come from his life and his death and his resurrection. Remind us that each of us, even in our own genders, have all that we need through him. He has changed us, changed even our pursuits, changed our paths, made us different. We are not who we once were because we are in him. We love Christ. We pray that, that what he's done would shape how we act as men and women, that we would be a godly people and attractive because we show Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.